Psalm 45 and starting at verse 1. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace, since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her those brought to be with her. Led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. For those of you who want me to expound Psalm 45... Uh, apologies, but I, we are going to touch on Psalm 45. I chose that as a complimentary reading because I'm just looking at one or two verses tonight, but it's a great psalm, and we will be referring to it. A quote. We need to stop acting as if heaven were a myth, an impossible dream, a relentlessly dull meeting, or an unimportant distraction from real life. We need to see heaven for what it is, the realm we are made for. And if we do, we'll embrace it with contagious joy, excitement, and anticipation. Well, I know you're far too well taught at Emmanuel Church to imagine that heaven is a myth, an impossible dream, a relentlessly dull meeting, or an unimportant distraction from real life. But... I do think all of us need constantly to be thinking about what lies beyond this world to know what we're destined for. Some of you may know the story of Richard Baxter, one of the great Puritans, and uh, throughout his life, he constantly had ill health. He said from the age of 21, he'd barely known a day free from pain. Um, 
literally cough, kidney stones, gallstones, migraines, nosebleeds, toothaches, dis- digestive disorders, the list goes on. And um, on one particular occasion in 1646, he was experiencing a terrible bout of ill health, and he had to be quarantined away from his family. He was in a home many miles from them, isolated from them. In fact, his physicians didn't give him long to live. Um, so he started to think about heaven. And uh, he started to write down his reflections. And those reflections were actually the start of a book, which is still published today, the book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest. Some of you may know it. It's David Arnold here. He's not, is he? But I'm sure David has had it on his bookshelf. Um, great Puritan writing. And... Um, But interestingly, he recovered and he found those meditations on heaven so wonderful, so refreshing, he resolved that for half an hour every day thereafter, he would focus his mind on heaven and the world to come. That means another 50 years, actually, from, I think it was, or thereabouts after this experience. Every day, half an hour, fixing his thoughts on the world beyond this one. And you're thinking, Kim, get real. Um, Look, we're in busy life. We haven't got that sort of time each day. But maybe, maybe if we cultivated a time each week to spend more time reflecting from the Bible, what is ahead of us, we'd be the richer for it. Well, that's what we're going to do tonight. Just for a few short moments, I want us to think about the world that is to come. And where better to turn than the book of the Revelation? I'm just going to read a few verses from Revelation chapter 19, and hopefully the other reading from Psalm 45 will become clearer. But let's look. Revelation 19, and I'm just going to read from verses 6 to 9 tonight. Just before these verses, um, great multitudes have been celebrating the downthrow of all that is opposed to God, Babylon, Babylon. the overthrow of all that is set against God. Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Well, I'm sure you know, at the beginning of the Bible, we have a wedding. It's there in Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve, brought together by God, that first human pair. And at the end of the Bible, another wedding. The wedding of Christ and his people. Now, as we think tonight just about these verses, and particularly the thought of the image of a wedding, it may be that I'm speaking to a person here tonight, just maybe, And for you, thinking about weddings is not a joyful experience. For many of us it is, but for some it might not be. I know this because maybe you're unmarried and you long to be married. And actually, talk of weddings is quite a pain to you. You feel your loneliness and dejection. If that's you tonight, 
then please listen up. This is your wedding that's in view here. You are going to be centre stage one day. It's right here in Revelation chapter 19. So don't switch off. Please listen. This is such a wonderful text for us tonight. Now, we could spend a long time, couldn't we, digging into these verses, but I have three, three things I want to say. Three things that relate to our future, our destiny as God's people in the coming age, in that new creation. First, what's our destiny? To bring unending delight to Christ. Secondly, to experience unending joy with Christ. And thirdly, to celebrate unending salvation through Christ. And we'll take those one at a time. First, to bring unending delight to Christ. Now, is that the first point you expected? You're saying, surely, Kim, the key thing is we will experience an unending delight by gazing at Christ. And yes, that is true, very much true. In fact, I think Ray Trainer may touch on this next week. I don't know, but I've seen his text for the evening service. But the point, I've been reflecting on this recently, and I think it's an important point for us to grasp is Christ's delight in the bride, in us. Staggering thought. But it does us good to remember that. So we read in these verses that the the wedding of the Lamb has come. Verse uh, 7. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. How do you think that the bride is going to appear to Christ on that great day? Stunning. Beautiful, glorious. I've been reading a book recently um, by Dustin Bench. Some of you may have picked it up. It's, it's, I can't remember what it's called now. The Loveliest Place. Subtitle, The Beauty and Glory of the Church. And in his first chapter, he makes this point that through the lens of Christ's cross and righteousness, we're already beautiful to Christ. But that beauty, that splendor, that radiance is going to be fully manifested on this great day that Revelation 19 is pointing towards. Beautiful apparel for the bride. Now, there's a slight paradox in verses 7 and 8 because this wonderful gown that she wears, on the one hand, is given to her by God. Look at verse 7. Second, um, where are we? Sorry, verse 8 Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And yet, it is also described here as the righteous acts of God's people. There's a paradox. Is this garment in which the the bride is arrayed her righteousness? Or a a garment that's been given to her by Christ? Well, I think it's, it's both, isn't it? It's both. So often in Scripture, there's a tension taught. On the one hand... We, as it were, seek to make ourselves more acceptable. No, that's the wrong word. But more holy in God's sight. We want to please him. And yet, every thought of holiness actually comes by God's grace and power, by his spirit. There's this cooperation going on. I suspect the righteous acts of God's holy people mentioned here is probably 
the um, standing up for Christ in the face of persecution. That's what Revelation is about, isn't it? It's about standing true to Christ in the face of hostility and possible martyrdom. And I think probably there's a reference here to the church who has, as it were, prevailed, who has stood true to Christ, irrespective of danger. But she is beautiful because of what God has done in her, enabling her to stand and prevail. Something precious here about the church. But irrespective of what's in view here, I want us to see this, the beauty, the beauty. Look at chapter, Revelation chapter 21. Slightly different imagery there. The holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. But listen, chapter 21 verse 2. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The emphasis here is on beauty, radiance, glory. And I think that's what brings delight to the heart of Christ. As we think of ourselves tonight, we know what we like, don't we? At the start of the book of Revelation, seven churches, and Jesus has strong words to speak to most of them. And yet now, now on this day, at the end of the story, beauty, radiance, glory, no sin, resplendent, what a day that will be. Christ taking delight in us, his people. I've had the joy of leading, well, conducting many weddings. And uh, one of the great moments is when you're standing at the front and the bride appears at the back. At that point, very few people have seen her in her wedding dress. Maybe a few family members, the photographer, but the congregation won't have done. And normally the bridegroom won't have done either. And you know what it's like? You've been, haven't you? So the bride makes her entry, and suddenly all heads are turning. There's a gasp. Amazing. She looks beautiful. Never seen her like this before. And uh, her husband-to-be, jaw drops, often. Incredulous. Amazing. That's the beauty of the bride. as She makes her entry. Well, that's a little picture, I think, of Christ's delight in us on that day. Christ loved the church, writes Paul, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy, blameless. All those for whom Christ has died, gathered from the nations through the ages, resplendent, And I'm quite convinced that there's great delight in the heart of Christ as he gazes upon his bride, as he sees all that he has suffered to achieve, the fruit of his suffering. And I think this delight of Christ for the church is foreshadowed many times in the Bible, um, in the Old Testament. I don't know what you make of the Song of Songs. I appreciate different commentators take different interpretive positions. But I'm sure we must see in that wonderful song something of the mutual love between Christ and his church. Psalm 45. Why did I have Psalm 45 read? It's a wedding song. It depicts the king in his glory, the first part of the psalm. Actually, some of those terms apply to the king at the start of Psalm 45 are taken up by the writer to the Hebrews 
and related to Jesus, the greater king to whom the psalm is pointing. And so if we see in the description of, in Psalm 45 of the king, something of Christ, I think it's probably legitimate to see in the description of the queen, something of the church. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honour him, for he is your Lord. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she's led to the king. Led him with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. What, what wonder. And so often in the prophets, yes, I know there's judgment on the people, their waywardness, but afterwards, the restoration that's promised, God speaks of his delight again over his people, using wedding imagery. And I think it's beautiful in the prophet Zephaniah when, when God says, he says this, um, I will rejoice over you with singing. A reference to God's singing over his people, now restored after judgment, that remnant, the Lord will take great delight in you. In his love he'll no longer rebuke you, but rejoice over you with singing. I think there's glimpses all over the Bible of the delight God has in his people, ultimately displayed in this magnificent setting of Revelation 19, the wedding of the Lamb. Tonight, take heart. I know what I'm like now. I don't know what all of you are like, but I suspect you have the same misgivings now, same sense of, can this really be true? Yes, yes. Through Christ, you are loved. And that day, your full radiance and glory will fill the heart of our Saviour with absolute joy and thankfulness. So I say again, first point, our destiny is to bring unending delight to Christ. Secondly, and more briefly, what else do we see in this passage? Well, I think we see our destiny is to experience unending joy. Joy with Christ. What marks this wedding? Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad. Let us rejoice and be glad. Joy, thankfulness, gladness. After all the waiting, after all the longing, after all the battles against the hostile world, it's all over now. Judgment has fallen. The wedding has come. The betrothment is over. The wedding supper. What's the best meal you've ever had? What's the best meal you've ever had? Can you think of one particular standout? I know couples, you're supposed to think of a wedding anniversary, aren't you, or something. Um, I remember a great meal with Aileen on my 30th wedding anniversary overlooking Sydney Harbour. It was, it was a great evening. But it's not just the food, is it? How many of you, when I said, think of a really great meal, thought of you on your own eating a meal? Now, you might have done, but I suspect most of us Think of times with others. It's not much fun eating on your own, is it? Some of you perhaps travel a lot. You're stuck in a hotel late at night. Food's there. And you think, oh, great. Here's me on my own. Is that right? That's not fun. The joy of, of a meal is sharing it with others. Companionship, friendship. In the Bible, meals aren't just about the food and the drink. It's about kinship. Well, I wonder what memorable meals you've had. Maybe a large family gathering. 
maybe one of your church meals. You have those, don't you? To get, have times together, fellowshipping together, church barbecue, or maybe a wedding reception. Wedding receptions, times of great joy and thankfulness. Unless you're an introvert. I know that. But I think God will deal with that in terms of by the time we get to Revelation 19. And we'll really enjoy this. Myriads of people to chat to. It's going to be great. And it's put down in terms of a wedding banquet. In the Old Testament, there's a wonderful picture of salvation held out to God's people in terms of a banquet in Isaiah chapter 25. It talks about on a mountain, the Lord praying, a feast of rich food for all people, banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, finest of wines, when the shroud of death is destroyed and the sovereign Lord wipes away all the tears and removes his people's disgrace from the earth. Isaiah has this amazing vision of the salvation of God in terms of this banquet. And I suspect that's just a little again, a foreshadowing of this wonderful, wonderful meal. Now, I appreciate Revelation as symbolic language. I appreciate that. And maybe we shouldn't try and be too literal about it. But I think there will be food and drink in the world to come, don't you? We're not just going to be floating around forever. This is a new creation, more wonderful than anything we have now in this creation. It's going to be glorious. And so as we look at this description of the wedding supper, it conveys to us, doesn't it, joy, festivity, celebration, Fellowship with saints through the ages, from all around the world, different nations, but ultimately, fellowship with the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, who will be in the midst. Blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. What a day that will be. What is before us? Bringing an unending delight to Christ, enjoying experiencing unending joy with Christ. Yes, we need to think much of heaven, don't we? Here's the third thing. To celebrate unending salvation through Christ. Unending salvation through Christ. What is striking in these verses is the way that Jesus is described. He isn't described as the bridegroom. He's described as what? The lamb. The Lamb. It's the wedding of the Lamb. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. That title is given to Jesus over and over again in the book of Revelation. First reference, chapter 5, verse 6, where John sees a Lamb looking as if it had been slain. The Lamb bearing marks of slaughter. And that is picked up through Revelation over and over again. Chapter 5, 6, 7, 12, 13, 14, 15, 17, 19, 21, 22. It's all through the book. Now, why is that? Well, of course, it's because the cross is never going to be forgotten, is it? Not even in the age to come. The cross is never going to be forgotten. John, you alluded to this. Um, And so right there, in the worship of that day, we will be conscious of this. The reason we are there is because of the Lamb slain, 
the lamb slain for sinners, our substitute. God has accepted his offering in our place for our sins that we might be clothed, as it were, with rightness, righteousness, counted worthy, welcome to this great wedding feast. And if you're not a Christian, the invitation is to you. Blessed are those who are invited. Will you come? You need to know Christ as the lamb slain for you. But the cross won't be forgotten in the age to come. When you get old, you quote hymns. Is that right, Brian? When you get older, you quote hymns. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that, that's that's fairly personal remark. Sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> hymns come flooding back to you. I grew up in Methodism years ago. And, uh, the hymn book. But you know, our hymns are replete with this theme of Christ's wounds, aren't they? Let me take just a couple of well-known hymns. There's a hymn by John... Uh, Tell me, is it Senec or Kenick? I never know. And Charles Wesley. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Wonderful verse. Those dear tokens of his passion. Still his dazzling body bears. Cause of endless exultation to his ransomed worshippers. With what rapture gaze we at those glorious scars. And then there's Matthew Bridges. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds, yet visible above in beauty glorified. In beauty glorified, but still there because the cross cannot be forgotten. And so here at this wedding, with all its joy and festivity and wonder, Jesus, the Lamb slain, for this multitude now gathered to him to bring him delight forever clothed in resplendent beauty. What a day that's going to be. You looking forward to it? We need to be reminded of it. I know we might say, surely this is just escapism. We've got massive issues to think about now. The cost of living, conflict between nations, contest for a new problem, all this stuff. Surely that's more important to focus on. Really? No, I think Richard Baxter was right, don't you? To spend time reflecting on the age to come. Not as an escapism, but helping us to live joyfully, expectantly in anticipation now for that day. Final quote. <clears throat> Far from forgetting his suffering and shed blood, it is a glory beyond compare that his people forever celebrate him as the lamb who is slain. We'll worship him forever with the beauty of his scars in view. Our call to worship tonight, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Here again, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a beautiful saviour. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, tonight we thank you so much that we can lift our eyes above all that is surrounding us, the news, the media. We know that we live in this world as our ambassadors. We know we're called to live for you here, to pray for our world intelligently, to apply our Bibles to all the trends and currents we see around us, but we thank you. But beyond this life, beyond this world, there is a new creation to come, a glorious, 
new world. And we thank you that as that is ushered in, there'll be a fantastic wedding. And we will see our Saviour as he is. We will see the King in all his beauty, even as he takes delight in the church's beauty. Oh God, we thank you tonight for what's before us. Not merited, not earned. What grace. Thank you for that invitation, Lord. Help us to live this week in the light of what is to come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.